Welcome to Shield of the Republic, a podcast sponsored by the Bulwark and the Miller Center of Public Affairs at the University of Virginia and dedicated to the proposition articulated by Walter Lippmann during World War II that a strong and balanced foreign policy is the necessary shield of our democratic republic. I'm Eric Edelman, counselor at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, a Bulwark contributor and a non-resident fellow at the Miller Center. My normal partner in this enterprise, Elliot Cohen, is traveling in the Middle East. He will be back after the holidays. But for our last episode before a holiday break, I'm happy to be at the Miller Center at the University of Virginia, where we are recording this today with John Owen and Mark Silverstone, who are both uh, affiliated with the Miller Center and the author of two important recent books, uh, John's book, The Ecology of Nations, which is about challenges to the liberal international order and the interrelationship between Democracy at Home and Democracy Abroad, and Mark Silverstone's book, The Kennedy Withdrawal, which I believe anyway is the definitive uh, answer to the unanswerable question of whether or not uh, John F. Kennedy, had he lived and been reelected, would have withdrawn American troops from Vietnam, as so many people have argued, or, or whether he would have been constrained by other uh, events. John and Mark, welcome to Shield of the Republic. Thank you, Eric. Thanks, Eric. Great to be here. Mark, let me start with you. I mean, both of these subjects are subjects that uh, are well-worn themes for uh, Shield of the Republic. Uh, We began our whole series of podcasts uh, slightly more than two years ago with my former Foreign Service colleague, Carter Malkazian, who had written a book about the American war in Afghanistan. And uh, we were recording in the immediate weeks after the withdrawal from Afghanistan, the disastrous withdrawal, which in many ways echoed the pretty disastrous U.S. withdrawal in in 1975. Mark, you have not only written this terrific book about uh, Jack Kennedy's um, concerns and plans, both for staying and leaving Vietnam in 1961 through his death in 1963, but also you were also the editor of a special session or a special edition of uh, the journal Diplomatic History, the professional journal of the Society for Historians of American Foreign Relations, uh, that examined the whole question of uh, withdrawals, not just the Kennedy withdrawal, which you wrote about for that in a shorter version for that uh, essay, but also the Nixon uh, ultimate withdrawal and then the denouement in, um, in Vietnam that echoed what happened. You know, this is not uh, this is not just a kind of historical question of antiquarian interest. In 2009, during the debate over the Afghanistan surge that uh, the Obama administration undertook, uh, there was a very active debate about what the Kennedy episode in the 1960s told us about how we should think about withdrawal in 2009. At the time, Gordon Goldstein had just published a book of ruminations by former National Security Advisor McGeorge Bundy, uh, in which Bundy was confronted with a lot of his, uh, you know, memoranda that he had written as National Security Advisor for both Kennedy and Johnson, uh, and which led him to the conclusion that Kennedy would have withdrawn. And there were others who argued that at the time, uh, this is in 2009 during the uh, Obama debate, uh, that that wasn't actually correct and that um, Kennedy probably would have had trouble withdrawing. And in fact, Johnson believed he was carrying out Kennedy's policy and, and a policy notably recommended to him by Kennedy's own advisors, including McGeorge Bundy. Um, I, I must say, look, I have a little bit of sympathy with Bundy. I'm, I'm I'm not looking forward to being confronted in the future. Uh, I'm already getting it a little bit from um, from James Wilson, who's a, a UVA grad who's at in the historian's office at uh, the State Department. So from time to time, I am confronted with memos that I wrote. I'm not looking forward to kind of, you know, having to continue to do that necessarily. But Mark, tell us just how you, what brought you to write about this and, you know, explain to our listeners uh, sort of what your conclusions were, because they're really fascinating. So first of all, thanks, Eric, for giving me this opportunity. I listened to S.H.I.E.L.D. 
all the time, and as I mentioned, uh, do so with my son. Uh, and uh, and so it's an honor, really, to be here with you. I had thought about this issue of Kennedy in Vietnam and what might have been from time to time, uh, certainly growing up, uh, Oliver Stone's 1991 film uh, was really powerful, and uh, it uh, reawakened in me an interest in the assassination that I had as a junior high school student. But I really didn't become engaged with Vietnam as a research field until I got here to the Miller Center uh, and began to work with the Kennedy White House tapes. And in 2005, uh, we had been invited to participate in what uh, were called critical oral histories. Uh, Jim Blight and Janet Lang and, and David Welch, in this occasion, were conducting a study of the Kennedy-Johnson transition uh, and Vietnam. And what did Kennedy think he was doing? What did he actually do? What did Johnson think Kennedy was doing? And did Johnson therefore think he was following through on Kennedy's objectives uh, after Dallas? And as part of that conference, uh, which again took place in 2005, uh, we at the Miller Center, since we were engaged in this transcription process, were asked to share what we had learned through Kennedy's White House tapes. And there was one particular tape from early October 1963 in which Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara and Chairman of the Joint Chiefs Maxwell Taylor returned to Washington from their 10 day or so fact finding trip in Vietnam and present Kennedy essentially with a plan to get the United States out of Vietnam by 1965. That's not the only thing that they offered to Kennedy in this report. There were a series of pressures that they suggested that the United States impose on the ZM regime in order to get it to perform better, something that the administration had been interested in for, for quite some time. But a signal piece of this, of this report was the withdrawal of American troops from Vietnam uh, by the end of 1965. And in an effort to kickstart the process, the thought that the United States might withdraw a thousand troops by the end of 1963. And the reasons for doing so were various. They included uh, uh, certainly domestic politics and domestic politics in, in a variety of, of guises. On the one hand, there had been deep displeasure with the American alliance with Saigon uh, for some time. Uh, you can go back quite far for that, but at least during Kennedy, probably for the president himself, the most significant departure from what had been before came with Mike Mansfield, Senate Majority Leader's mm -hmm. report, which suggested essentially that we're, we're back at the, at the beginning of this of this relationship that had been uh, pretty robust for the last nine years or so in which the United States was essentially keeping and, South Vietnam alive. And Mansfield is influential, not just because he's the Senate majority leader, although that obviously in and of itself would have said a lot, but he also had a PhD in East Asian history. Yes, and had taught it and was widely recognized as, as the Senate's font of wisdom on, on Southeast Asia. Later went on to be, by the way, ambassador to Japan mm -hmm, for about right. 10 years uh, across administrations of both parties. Right. So, so there is skepticism uh, that Kennedy is hearing about the prospects for the U.S.-South Vietnamese relationship. And it's tough to kind of get a great read on where Kennedy himself is. He didn't write much on this. Uh, what he had communicated to others often comes through either in the oral history literature, which um, is important for this understanding of Kennedy's intentions. Uh, and some of it comes through textual memoranda, uh, uh, NSAMs, National Security Action Memoranda, as well as, as other materials. But since we have tapes now to go on, we can actually hear Kennedy speaking with his close advisors about the disposition of American troops in Vietnam and what he says to McNamara and Taylor uh, on this uh, October morning in 1963 is that, uh, well, uh, it, it might be worth it essentially to 
get the United States out of Vietnam. And this is based upon a series of conversations that the two of them had had going back, but that he's really kind of dubious of doing it under adverse military conditions. Uh, and it's something he had expressed to McNamara when the two were alone in private back in May. Uh, and he says so to a larger group this morning, and he will say so again to an even larger group that afternoon when the full National Security Council meets to debate the wording of a public announcement to the country that the United States believes that the situation in Vietnam would have progressed such that two years hence, we would be able to get American troops out. As Kennedy says in that morning meeting, though, if 65 doesn't work out, we'll get a new date. And that's consistent with, from my perspective, everything we know about Kennedy's posture towards South Vietnam, the commitment he had made to making sure that the country would, would um, survive as a non-communist independent state. And over the course of the next several weeks, uh, uh, the, the policy plays out to put the screws to ZM in ways that the McNamara report laid out. And there is still conversation about getting those troops out and those thousand troops out. And in fact, those thousand troops do leave uh, by early December. So that policy kind of continues. We don't know, of course, what Kennedy would have done with the 1965 end date, but a variety of factors, including Kennedy's own words, suggests to me that at the time he went to Dallas, he was still committed to preserving an independent non-communist South Vietnam. While he might have revisited that commitment at a later date, even his most ardent admirers believe he would not have done so until after November 1964. And then, of course, you get into uh, counterfactuals of several orders of magnitude. But essentially, in his last days, while he was certainly uncomfortable with the depth of the American commitment, there is no sense that he was really willing to abandon it. And, and of course, again, you, as you say, it's a counterfactual. We can't you know, know what he would have done, but the decisions that LBJ makes in February of 65 are made in the context of a deteriorating military situation, Absolutely. which would have made it extremely difficult, uh, as you note, for Kennedy yeah. to, to withdraw because he himself was concerned about this. I mean, the, the problem this illuminates, I think, and, and John, I'd be interested in your comments on this, I mean, uh, it is a classic one that political scientists identify about alliance management, right, which is the, the oscillation constantly between you know, fears of abandonment and, you know, fears of entrapment, right? The, the, the fear that the South Vietnamese had that the United States were going to walk out on them, which is palpable. I mean, in your book, you documented very uh, well how constantly, you know, this was a problem uh, for the Americans to wrestle with, you know, the, the problem of the weak ally, you know, if you abandon me, I will die, you know, and, and that is powerful. Um, I, I kind of lived through this a little bit, you know, myself, um, in Iraq, when I was undersecretary, at one point, just war story, um, you know, Don Rumsfeld uh, and George Casey wanted to pull out, you know, brigade uh, combat team from Iraq out of the 15, I believe we had at the time. Don't hold me to that number, but it was roughly that. And they wanted to, they wanted to ramp down our, you know, our uh, numbers so that we could turn over more of the fight to the Iraqis. Right. And uh, Rumsfeld decided to pull one out. And this was in, like, uh, I want to say June of May or June of 2006. So it's in a period where circumstances are deteriorating after the Golden Dome bombing um, in Samara in February, I think it was, or early March of, of 2006. <clears throat> and Rumsfeld, as was his wont, occasionally said to me, um, I'm going to pull out a brigade. Why don't you call Condi Rice and let her know I'm doing it? So I called the Secretary of State, who I nominally still work for because I was on detail as a Foreign Service officer. Um, she was not happy, you know, and and her comments to me were, you know, what what is, you know, you, you know, what don't you understand? This is going to completely demoralize, you know, the Iraqi government. We can't de and destabilize it. You know, we can't can't do this now. So the tension between the two is, is, a, is a real constant. Well, at least there was a 
conversation about that between those those two departments. There really isn't much of one during the Kennedy period. I mean, this is really a project that's being run by the Defense Department. It looks as though State Department and White, White House personnel from time to time might acknowledge it or have their hand in it, but not really until the very end, until October of 1963. And in, even in this conversation with McNamara and Taylor and Kennedy on the morning of October 2nd, Bundy asks, asks McNamara point blank, what's the point of doing it? What's the point of, of pulling out? And McNamara says in these plaintive tones, we need a way to get out of Vietnam and to leave forces there when they're not needed complicates both our problems and theirs. And it's an interesting point that you make in the book, which I think is very uh, useful for you know, scholars to focus on. So one point you make is that a lot of the planning for withdrawal actually is completely divorced from the actual situation in Vietnam and is driven by McNamara's bureaucratic imperative, which is the imposition of the planning, programming, budgeting system and cost rationalization for defense programs, of which Vietnam is one, just one among right. many. And it's not even really connected necessarily to an assessment of the situation on the ground, policy determination. It's really, we've got to get, you know, the budget, you know, essentially in balance and there's a cost here. I've got to decrease it. How do we decrease it? Well, we'll have fewer troops there, which means they've got to be withdrawn. Yeah. And also to make sure that the programs that were currently running in Vietnam were harmonized because they hadn't been. There had been a counterinsurgency plan that Kennedy inherited when, when he came in. But by and large, as Kennedy's advisor said, several of these programs, whether they were to work with the regular def uh, defense forces in Vietnam, the Strategic Hamlet Program, other operations being conducted by rural affairs, they were not tightly coordinated, and they should be. And so McNamara's objective is to force all of them to work more closely together, to rationalize them, to, put, to make them part of a conceptual whole at the same time that he is going through these gyrations at DOD with cost reduction and, uh, and budgeting. And, you know, a common through line that goes through this whole debate about withdrawal in Vietnam, withdrawal of troops in Iraq and also Afghanistan, is the desire of American policymakers to get the, the indigenous partner to step up and ultimately be, you know, responsible for their, their own defense. Um, you know, when we get to the Nixon period, and I know you, you you were not writing about that specifically in the book, but although you're, I know, very knowledgeable about it from the uh, Diplomatic History Roundtable, um, you know, Secretary Laird, who in my book, by the way, is one of the great secretaries of defense, and there are not many of them, and, and it's a hard job, but he was relentless in pushing this, you know, saying we've got to get American troops out because we've got to get Vietnamese, the ARVN, the Army of the Republic of Vietnam, to shoulder a lot of uh, a lot of the burden here. Yeah, totally. Um, I was just reading again Bob Comer's uh, "Bureaucracy Does Its Thing," and and one of the arguments that Comer makes in that is that after all, uh, stops and starts and uh, and uh, false leads and and corners that they they uh, they were not able to really turn around. Um, some of that proved to be effective and that there was a bit more responsiveness that they got from Saigon during the Nixon years as a result of this pressure, essentially. Uh, look, we're not going to be here forever. Uh, you can see the writing on the wall. You know, there are 14 separate increments of withdrawal during the course of the Nixon period. You have to step up and, and, and organize better. Um, but I, I think there's still many who, who believe that it if it was effective, it was much too little, too late, uh, and still you didn't have the kind of successful, uh, you were not promoting uh, the kinds of leaders who you would need to have at, uh, in various spots, both in the civilian as well as military ranks in Saigon to, to, to make be able to carry it off. To carry it off. And, you know, uh, you mentioned Bob Comer's Bureaucracy does its thing, his RAND study, which is a terrific study, by the way. And um, I, I'm 
you know, read it while I was undersecretary um, and we were wrestling with many of the same kind of dynamics in Iraq and Afghanistan. And, you know, the gravamen of Comer's um, study is that we created the Army of the Republic of Vietnam in the image of the U.S. Army, and we tried to create a mini U.S. Army, and that was countercultural in Vietnam, and uh, they lacked the resources, and it was never going to, you know, succeed. If you look at the Special Inspector General uh, report about the collapse in Afghanistan, it's the same pathology. It's like we learned nothing collectively as a government between the 60s and, you know, the, the 2020s. We trained the Afghan National Security Forces to operate with, you know, the kind of air cover uh, and combat air support that only we can provide, uh, that we, you know, did the kind of mission planning for them that only we could do, that they couldn't really do on their own. Um, and then when we pulled the contractor support and all the other enablers that, you know, we had provided, we wondered why they couldn't, why they couldn't fight when it obviously would have been, by the way, just a an aside, uh, I'm one of the, I think, only people in government who had Bob Comer as a predecessor in two of their jobs. He was my predecessor as Undersecretary of Defense. Um, he was Undersecretary in the Carter administration. I think he was one of the, he might have been the first, actually, Undersecretary when the position was created. And he also was briefly ambassador to Turkey, which is a little known part of his career. He was nominated by Lyndon Johnson um, in uh, the days immediately after the 1968 election. The United States Senate, in its infinite wisdom, refused to uh, confirm him because the administration was going out and the Republicans in the Senate would not allow the confirmation to take place. Uh, he was given a recess appointment, which obviously would expire and, uh, and ultimately was uh, uh, ordered back to the United States in uh, his, his, his recess appointment or his his uh, nomination actually was withdrawn by the Nixon administration on like January 22nd or 23rd of 1969. And he returned to Washington in April after having about a four or five month tour of duty. Although it was very, uh, it was a very eventful, you know, four months. He, he went to speak very famously at Middle East Technical University. And uh, while he was giving a speech in, in, I can't remember whether it was late 68 or early 69, the students outside overturned his armored Cadillac limousine and lit it on fire and burned it. So I would, when I was ambassador to Turkey, I would frequently, if I went out to speak at Turkish universities, which I did from time to time, uh, and I came back and people in the embassy said, how did you do, Mr. Ambassador? I said, I exceeded the Comer standard. They yeah. didn't burn my, didn't burn my, okay. my limo. <laughs> so, um, although there were a couple of occasions when it came close, I think, but um, John, let me turn uh, to you. I mean, the Vietnam War was, as you note in your book, essentially a, a, an effort, mis, uh, misbegotten in some ways, to sustain the liberal order that the United States had established after, after World War II. And that order today finds itself under enormous stress and strain. Your book is really terrific, too, and it, it, it has a very subtle argument that I can't possibly do justice to, but I'd love you to sketch out the argument briefly for our our listeners, how the um, state of democracy in the United States is connected uh, and how there are reciprocal influences between the international security environment for democracies writ large and U.S. democracy and vice versa. Yeah. Well, thanks. And thanks. Eric, for having me on this, your superb podcast. This is a real honor for me. Um, I'll start by framing what the United States was trying to do in Vietnam, and for that matter, Afghanistan much later, in, ter in the terms I put in the book, which is um, it's really trying to engineer the international environment to favor itself, but itself includes it's regime type liberal democracy. So I'll, I'll, I'm going to elaborate in a minute, but I, um, I want to make clear when I, I'm one of those people, when I talk about national security, the national interest, I don't simply mean safety from foreign conquest or intimidation, you know, territorial integrity. Uh, I also mean preserving the, the regime. So China's leaders believe its national interest is not simply uh, safety from, 
foreign attack, getting Taiwan back, but preserving the monopoly on power of the Chinese Communist Party. For Americans, a national interest, again, security, sure, security from foreign attack, but also preserving our regime of liberal democracy. And those things are entangled. You can't really separate them. Uh, and one reason why you can't separate them, and now here's where I'll get into the argument of the book, is um, we know from history that there are certain times and places in which it's very hard for countries to become and remain democratic. The 1930s was the most obvious time for me. Uh, I wasn't around, but um, clearly democracy was, was falling in Europe and in some jeopardy in this country. We don't like to remember that, but, but uh, fascism and, and communism on the other end of the spectrum, very appealing to a lot of Americans, a lot of important Americans. This is true, not just in the U.S., but in a lot of other countries. That's telling us something. Something was going on internationally in the 30s. It's not just coincidental. The 90s were very different. In the 1990s, which I do remember, it was a lot easier to become a democracy, to remain a democracy all across most parts of the world. I think the Middle East would be an exception, but other parts of the world uh, were uh, democratizing. And this was the time of uh, Francis Fukuyama's end of history thesis. We know that liberal democracy has won the age old contest of ideas. Well, here again, something's going on internationally, not just within one country or two. So I've always found this interesting. And I turn to evolutionary theory to help figure out what's going on here. And I say, there's this thing called the international environment that sometimes is friendlier to democracy, sometimes friendlier to autocracy, or in evolutionary language, it selects for democracy sometimes and for autocracy sometimes. So that's one big point I make in the book. A second big point is great powers like the United States have a lot of influence over that international environment. So there's a back and forth movement, if you will. Um, most U.S. leaders would not adopt my evolutionary terminology, but their behavior and their words suggest they understand this basic point. So in the 1940s, even the 30s, FDR understood democracy was under threat here and elsewhere. And at the end of the war, he, his administration and the Truman administration took active steps to reshape the international order so that it would make it easier to be a democracy, so that it wouldn't favor authoritarian. Because authoritarianism, fascism, had led to the worst war uh, the human race had ever seen, as well as lots of other bad things. So that's point to the United States and other countries like China today, which I'll, I'll come back to in just a moment, have this ability. They understand the dynamics and they shape them to favor themselves. So American leaders, and I want to, want to be as clear as I can, aren't necessarily primarily acting to promote democracy for its own sake. They are backing the national interest in, in doing this. The third point, big point of the book is things aren't going very well. We're not in the 1930s, here in the 2020s, but it's more in that direction than we like. Democracy is wobbly in this country, but also in other wealthy, mature democracies, in Europe in particular. Um, again, this is telling us something. Something's going on out there in the international environment. So because I argue that great powers like the United States have a special role in shaping the international environment, we have to look at ourselves first and foremost. What, are we doing something wrong? And I say, yes, we are. We have um, been sort of pumping into the international environment some rules, some norms, some policies, uh, a kind of a culture that is undermining democracy here at home and in a lot of other countries as well. That's, so that's one problem. I call this open liberalism. It's uh, I, I'm for liberal democracy, for sure. Um, liberalism has evolved over the decades, over the centuries. We now have a form that was that worked really well about uh, complete openness of borders to movements of capital, labor, um, goods and services. It, it's good for some things. It's, it seems to be backfiring on us now. There's a culture of complete openness and experimentation and fluidity that comes with that that works for a lot of people, it really doesn't work for other people, all right? 
fourth big point is it's not just that. That's not the only problem with democracy in the world today. It's really the rise and activity of two authoritarian giants, China and Russia. They are, they're quite aware also of the dynamics I discuss in the book. They don't use evolutionary language either, but they are actively, and there's a lot of scholarly and literature and journalism on this, think tank studies, uh, trying actively to reshape the international environment to favor themselves and their regime type. They're very aware of the liberal bias that the United States built into the international order after World War II. They're tired of it. it. It's helped them in some ways, but in other ways, it's really handicapping them. And China especially is in a position to do something about it at last, and it is doing some things. It's changing, trying to change some rules and discourse and, and so on. So, so far, kind of gloomy. So my last big point is uh, the United States is still a great power, still a democracy, and can do something about this. So there are things we can do to try to right, right the ship. Um, uh, it's not going to be easy. It's going to take some real rethinking. Uh, and it's not without risk, but I think it has to be has to be done. So <clears throat> let me try and tie together some of what um, Mark and I were talking about earlier, John, and, yeah. and, and what you just said. So part of the uh, sort of armament of arguments that are authoritarian adversaries like to throw at us is that we're not actually a very reliable or good ally. And I don't want to get into the debate about whether Putin invaded Ukraine because of the withdrawal from Afghanistan, but clearly the kind of shambolic withdrawal from Afghanistan, mm -hmm. you know, created enormous problems for us. Now, if you think back to 1975, the pretty, you know, shambolic uh, withdrawal from Vietnam caused us some momentary kind of dislocations in the region and elsewhere, although yeah. the United States ultimately did recover uh, from, you know, from that and, um, you know, continued to be able to play an important role in uh, East Asian security and, and in fact, a role that enabled the so-called peaceful you know, rise of China. Uh, but how much reputational damage do you think, you know, that did to the United States? And, of course, the other you know, element of concern about the alliances. We talked a minute ago about the fear of abandonment by allies. I hear this all the time about mm. from European allies is what happens if Donald Trump is elected in November of, of 2024? Will the United States pull out of the NATO alliance or its other treaty alliances? I mean, John Bolton, uh, who was one of Trump's national security advisors, has said unequivocally he believes in the second term that Trump would, you know, uh, pull us out of NATO. I mean, who knows whether he would or right. he wouldn't. It's not even clear whether he unilaterally, without the assent of the Congress, can actually do that. Although, I mean, I'm not sure we want to litigate that. But um, so, so how does all of this fit together? Because, you know, part of your argument is that our sort of standing as a democracy and the challenges we face at home is also having, a, you know, an impact on our ability to... Um, affect this ecosystem of, yeah. of uh, international democracies. Yeah. I want to, let me talk about the Af Afghanistan withdrawal in, in, in two ways. Um, first, what was the United States trying to do in terms the terms I argue? Uh, and second, about the reputational effect. So the first is uh, the United This is 2001, 2002, a long time ago. My students weren't born. Uh, but the United States really was... Uh, trying to now I, I'm sitting in the room across the table from someone who, who was there who knows more about this but but I, in terms of my argument the United States was trying to engineer the ecosystem in the Muslim Middle East or on its periphery for obvious reasons mm -hmm. um, there the political pathologies of radical Islamism had just gotten out of control uh, and Afghanistan you know uh, al-qaeda was headquartered there and, and so on so the United States saw an opportunity it was the unipole if not now when, um, we can we can affect this thing. We we can um, help uh, liberal democracy or some you know locally appropriate facsimile uh, get a foothold in the region. This is this is classic ecosystem engineering. Not against China, not against Soviet Union, against a, a different kind of foe. Very difficult task, obviously. Um, so I want I want to just make clear the U.S. is not just exercising power or punishing an enemy. It's really trying to shape shape the environment. Uh, look, from, from, from where I sat, that's absolutely right. Yeah. So now, um, 
it turned out to be uh, extremely difficult, and it took many years, and the United States eventually under Biden just withdrew pretty abruptly, and I, I agree, it was, was not a well-done withdrawal. Um, we can we don't want to litigate the timing of that and how it was done exactly. And but your bipartisan blame since the yeah, original exactly. withdrawal agreement was exactly. reached under um, under uh, President Trump President and Trump. signed by Secretary Pompeo. Yeah, so plenty of blame to go around. Now, the damage to the to the U.S. reputation, which is uh, the question you put to me, I think is is uh, serious, and it affects indirectly the international environment that I'm so obsessed with because the U.S. is the Democrat, liberal democratic great power. It's the hegemon, if you will. So um, I was at, a side note, I was at a, a party in Washington a few weeks ago and I talked to a European ambassador, uh, not, not from one of the big Western countries, but he, he was from uh, Eastern Europe. And he said to me, um, if American democracy goes, European democracy goes. Maybe he was exaggerating, but this this is not a crazy thesis that the U.S. is this kind of linchpin or key keystone. So biologists talk about a keystone species and in, in an ecosystem. This is the U.S. is something like that, right? So when the U.S. reputation suffers, when it gets a reputation for being unreliable, um, uh, acting randomly, you know, where, where does this abrupt withdrawal come from with such poor planning? <laughs> that that's um, that. Smaller states and the elites within smaller states pay a lot of attention. You know, is this telling us not just something about the U.S. and the Biden administration or, you know, the Pentagon or, but but something about the ability of a democracy to do what it needs to do in today's world. And if democracies aren't capable of handling vital issues like that, maybe it's not a great system anymore. Look at the, so elites, and I have a lot of this in my book, elites look at alternatives. They do this all the time. What, how's democracy doing? Meaning, how is the U.S. and the EU doing? How are these alternative regimes doing? Let's look at China. You know, China has its problems. They've become more evident since COVID. Uh, but China is still st- does some things pretty well. It doesn't get entangled militarily in other countries. That right now makes it look pretty good. To some, to some elites, right? So I think we need to take reputation seriously as a matter, not, not just of the U.S. and China, but the regime types we represent, the, the environment. So I'm not going to say American democracy is in danger because we withdrew from Afghanistan precipitously. It's not, it's not that simple. But that withdrawal is part of um, the recent damage to the U.S. reputation. Let me kind of reframe that. Yeah. And, and then... And then, Mark, maybe you want to join and comment about, you know, how this played out in Southeast Asia, you know, in the years after uh, Kennedy and, and Nixon's withdrawal as well. So just to kind of revise and extend your remarks, John, no, feel free. So, uh, you know, if you look at the president's poll numbers, uh his approval disapproval rating cross in August of 2021 at the time of the withdrawal. And my, you know, working hypothesis has been ever since that the president ran against President Trump in uh, President Biden, that is, yeah. ran against President Trump in the 2020 election saying Trump is erratic, he's not competently managed COVID. Uh, I'm a safe pair of hands. You know, I've been around this town for 40 years. I was the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. I am a safe, competent pair of hands. And American voters looked at what happened. They might have wanted, actually, the U.S. to get out of Afghanistan. Right. But not like that. Not like that. And and so the Biden administration's reputation for competence at home Mm -hmm. suffered, and he's never politically recovered from that. If I hear you right, what you're saying is it, there's also an international dimension to this. Our reputation for competence in execution of policy was damaged by that event, and gave, it was sort of grist for the mill of you know the PRC and Russia who want to say, look how incompetent you know the American democracy is. There are better ways to organize societies than that. Right, right. So it, it's not an isolated event, right? It comes against 
the backdrop of, you know, the, the Trump years, this um, January 6, 2021, all of these events that make democracy look wobbly in the United States and look like a bad bet for a lot of elites out there in the world. You know, why would we, maybe 30 years ago, it was a great bet, but not anymore, right? And they can't even withdraw from this little country. They've been there since 2001. They can't, they don't know how to get out. Um, maybe we'll look to other models. Yeah, so I do, I do take this. I think this is quite a serious uh, matter. Yeah. This calls to mind the conversations that people were having in the 1950s, the era mm -hmm. of decolonization, mm -hmm. uh, when the question was, all about hearts and minds and the contest of development whose model will prove the most effective right yeah. the uh the, the western model or the eastern model and it was explicitly framed that way and so much of the emphasis was on getting our own house in order making sure that our reputation for competence was solid so mm -hmm. that as countries got out from under the yoke of colonialism they would choose our model and not the other guy's model. And that was part of what Bob Comer was interested in, Walt Rostow and others who Walt were- Walt Rostow, who was the deputy national security advisor under McGeorge Bundy for Kennedy and who had written Stages of Economic Growth, which was precisely rooted in this whole modernization theory debate. Exactly. And who also was pushing along with others, a really significant uh, uh, expansion of U.S. foreign aid uh, to the developing world uh, as a way to signal not only our our, our interest in, in, in them and, and our friendship, but a hope that they would side with us in in the great contest. So so the dynamics are familiar. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Between and, them and, and in the Kennedy administration. Correct me if I'm wrong, Mark, but I think AID, the Agency for National Development, is actually established. Sixty one in the, the Kennedy administration. Foreign Assistance Act. Yeah. And the and the uh, president's commitment uh, to go to the moon by the end of the decade is in many ways a part of this larger competition of, of systems mm -hmm. in the wake of the Russian launch of a uh, Earth satellite Sputnik in 1957 before the United States went to space, even though I think by 61 we more or less had, had caught up. But um, Yeah, Kennedy's pledge to go to the moon and then return a man safely comes six weeks, five weeks, after uh, Yuri Gagarin uh, uh, heads on out into space successfully, uh, and uh, it's a it's a signal moment for the administration, a, a second uh, inaugural slash State of the Union, if you will. He did uh, make a major address at the end of January '61, which is quite lurid, in fact, if one goes back to read read it about us living through the hour now of maximum danger, things are going to get worse mm. before they get better. I mean, imagine a president these days. Well, it, it's not exactly American carnage yeah. of a different <laughs> sort, but it's a, it's a suggestion that we're in some really tough times. And I think it's also part and parcel of the of the ask not of uh, uh, commitments that that Kennedy is is uh, imposing on Americans. Uh, greater sacrifice, greater patience, greater persistence, which are themes that carry through his, his administration. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's about uh, ensuring the viability of democracy at home so that there is the spillover effect abroad at the same time that they're quite actively going out and trying to make sure that regimes don't turn again yeah. to the other. I'll guy. jump in with just a quick yeah. Please, uh, yeah. support. Um, there is, uh, J Joe Nye, the father of the soft power thesis, uh, has done a lot of, he and people associated with done a lot of polling. What, why do people, what do people most admire about the United States? And I thought the answer would be democracy, but the number one is technology. Mm -hmm. And so Kennedy and the Kennedy people were onto something that th this is a, sh a show of national competence and superiority to the Soviet model. Yeah. I mean, yeah. they had defined the 1960s as the, the decade of development. And they were going to problem solve. There were, and they had reason to believe that they could be successful in that, given uh, the era of abundance that we were living through. And yes, the economy had taken a little bit of a downturn at the end of Ike, but generally speaking, the tra trajectory was still pretty good. And one could believe in, in the early 1960s that if there was a problem, the Americans could solve it. Certainly what 
Bob McNamara and the whiz kids that he brought to the Pentagon. Thought, yeah, you you um, you know you make reference in the book, Mark, to <clears throat> actually I think one of the most illuminating interviews that Jack Kennedy gave, which is in December of 1962. So it's about two minutes, two months rather, after the missile crisis over Cuba. Uh, and it's, I think, David Lawrence of ABC News. Several of them that were there. I think Sandy Van Oker was there. Yeah, but, and, it, and this was televised. Yeah. And it was sort of Kennedy's reflections at you know the end of a pretty tough year. And, and there are a couple of things about that that have struck me. And in fact, I have part of it inscribed on an index card I keep in my briefcases. So one part of it that's fascinating is Kennedy's talking about, to the your point about pay any price, bear any burden, I know he said the American people are, you know, um, tired after 17 years of exertion in this difficult Cold War, but we have to kind of persevere. And I'm thinking 17 years, you know, we're now like 70 years after essentially the uh, institution of this, you know, uh, global rules based order. And I think there's palpable fatigue among Americans at the cost of keeping it up. The, The other and, and to Bob Kagan's point about the world America made, which really is what you're mm-hmm. describing, John, yeah. you know, Bob's point in his book is uh, Americans have this idea that the system just ticks over and nobody has to run it. Right. But actually, you have to run it and it requires a certain amount of national yeah. exertion. The, the other thing that um, Kennedy says is very poignant and, and really has stuck with me throughout my years in government is... You know, they say, what have you learned? You've written about presidential decision-making, your profiles in courage, or put yeah, his name contributed on it. to it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we now know that there were others involved in drafting that, but um, you know, what have you learned about presidential leadership? And what Kennedy says, it's really quite poignant. He said, I, I realized the problems are harder than I imagined, that the choices are more narrowly constrained than I realized, and that... Um, you know, in the end of the day, it's the president who has to make the decision about what to do about these knotty problems. The advisors give all sorts of advice. You have to make the decision. And then he says, and then the advisors get on to continue to go on to continue to give other advice, whether it's right or wrong. And it's, I mean, it's a very, I think, you know, poignant, I think, encapsulation of the difficulty that policymakers, but particularly presidents have when confronting these really difficult you know, um, difficult problems, but to the issue of, you know, uh, bear any burden, pay any price. I mean, this, there is an amount of, you know, national exertion required to keep this system going. Yeah. And, you know, it it involves, um, you know, a variety of different uh, things, notably including literally our willingness to tax ourselves to pay for all of this. Um, John, do you have a optimistic or a pessimistic view of where we're headed on that? I mean, Ooh, you know, yeah. are, are Americans, you know, finally reaching the point of exhaustion? I mean, we're hearing sort of kind of isolationist sentiments on both sides of the political spectrum, right. both the left and the right, that sort of, you know, for different reasons, obviously, yeah. Yeah. but both of which betray a certain fatigue with you know, carrying the burden of being the hegemon that, that, you know, uh, that has to, you know, be the, the yeah. night watchman and, you know, turning the key to keep the mechanism going. Yeah. yeah. Um, what's well, your sense? Yeah. It's, it's too, it's, no, I have a glib reply, which is if you, if you think, um, hegemony is expensive, try letting someone else become the hegemon. You're going to pay for it, for it later in ways you don't want. Uh, but it is an option. Um, and I, I even think, you know, thinking of the title of this podcast, so Littman's Shield of the Republic, it's important that he had the word Republic in there, not Shield of the State, mm-hmm. Shield of the Republic. That's that's basically what I'm talking about. To, to maintain a robust democracy, the U.S. needs to think and act in out in the world. Not aggressively, not uh, attack our enemies, uh, um, uh, although that sometimes must be done, but uh, it's more about shaping um, the rules and the information environment and so on. So, yes, I think we are a weary titan, uh, to cite Aaron Friedberg's 
uh, book from which, Fuse which, about Britain, which was about Britain in the late nineteenth yeah, century. Yeah, so we don't want yeah we but, don't want that the, to happen. But the difference, yeah, the, I mean, if if I might just yeah sure the difference you know Aaron's book is a great book, but the difference that the people he's writing about the Brits in the late nineteenth century and us is that they had someone to pass the torch to yeah who shared a common language two people separated by a common language, right. as yes, Churchill right. said. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, and also pretty much a common sense of the, the importance of uh, democracy. Right. And today there's nobody for us yes. to pass the torch. That's right. That's right. So, uh, and also I, I don't, I like to think we're not headed on such a decline as Britain uh, went through in the first half of the 20th century. But, so I think the choice is open to us. I think, uh, wh- what are we going to do? Um, I think a lot depends on who, who becomes president next year. There is a, we all know about this. You alluded to this, a uh, revival of, I'll call it, yeah, isolationism. I mean, they, they, people don't like that term, but, you know, withdrawal, let, let the other, let these countries sort it out themselves. Restraint. Rest, yeah, restraint, however you like it, however you like to put it. Um, I think part of it, you know, people like Barry Posen, who, who, they know what they they're scholars they know but a lot of people who back this don't really know the history and don't they they don't understand i would say how the world works they don't know that you know bob kagan's phrase the jungle grows back yeah that that that's going to happen uh they also take very seriously some of the mistakes that i think the united states has made as hegemon you know some of those in vietnam um thinking about the, the u.s uh, some of the interventions the U.S. did after the Cold War ended uh, could have been done better, or maybe shouldn't have been done. Um, you know, but but uh, the alternative is not simply well, we either go f- you know, full bore on intervention and uh, try to run the world because the world can't run itself, or we just withdraw. And hegemony really, the the rational type of hegemony occupies a, a middle ground that I try to sketch out in, in the book. Uh, and opting out simply doesn't work. And the, the main reason is it gets to what you were saying a minute ago, Eric. Um, China has made, I don't, I don't think China wants to rule the world, although if the United States completely withdrew, why not? Why wouldn't China continue to extend its influence and try to shape global rules? You know, other countries yeah. do this. This is what great powers do. And it lowers the barriers to entry yeah. for them. Exactly. So um, we can think hypothetically about what kind of world that would be. If the United States said, you know, we're, we're pulling our navy out of uh, East Asia. In fact, we're going to just we're just going to be a Western Hemisphere power. You know that that's restraint. Um, we might not like. We might not just not like, but we might suffer. We might find uh, a lot of pressure on our own security. And we're and what really worries me is that would put democracy under pressure. If the United States is less and less secure from foreign in, intimidation. Uh, there's more and more pressure to centralize power in this country, to sacrifice, uh, to make compromises on our own democratic institutions. And that really is, I think, something to think hard about and something I, I certainly want to avoid. The garrison state from yeah, the late 1970s that's right. that yeah. was described. Yeah. yeah. Or, and what Eisenhower worried about. Yes, absolutely. A lot in the 1950s yeah. about whether we'd be able to bear it, which is why Eisenhower chose to essentially try to cut defense spending, but did it by assuming risk, which he thought he could mitigate by America's disproportionate nuclear force and, and power. Right, right. So this turns around. I'm very familiar with the critique that says uh, it's imperial America that's not democratic, right? That And and at a certain point, that that's true, right? If the United States really tried to rule and control the world, yeah, I don't want to live in that country either. But people, many people forget the opposite, the kind of converse risk, which is if you really are isolated you're quite vulnerable. You're, you're going to find adversaries who have a very different vision of the world and the good life and the good society have more and more leverage over you. You're going to be less secure. What do you do then? Well, I'm, that's when I'm afraid you also risk um, a uh, moves away from democracy. Uh, we're running uh, short on time, Mark. I just wanted to come back to you on one, one thing. You talked about uh, the year of maximum danger. Uh, and of course, uh, one of the people who served in Kennedy's administration, um, uh, essentially as my predecessor, because his job was the direct, uh, assistant secretary for international security affairs in the Pentagon, which was the 
forerunner of the undersecretary for policy position was Paul Nitzer. And Nitzer, of course, had used that phrase once before in, uh, when he wrote NSC uh, 68 in, in 1949 and early 1950. Uh, he anticipated with the uh, detonation of a, a Soviet nuclear weapon that uh, in four years out around 1954 would be the year of maximum danger when the Soviets not only would have a conventional you know, advantage, but also enough nuclear weapons to negate our our nuclear advantage, and hence he advocated a big buildup of both conventional and nuclear forces by by the United States. Um, I, you know, President Biden has said we're at an inflection point, and you know, my sense is that uh, people under as a scholar before I came into government. I grossly underestimated how difficult it is to get the American public behind doing almost any big, big thing. Mm-hmm. And I mean, Kennedy kind of is wrestling with that in much of your book. You know, how do you get the American public? This is what my late teacher, Walter Lefebvre, used to call the Tocqueville problem. How do you get public support for, for foreign policy? And, you know, sort of historians and scholars normally will look at this and say, well, look at the Truman Doctrine speech where Vandenberg says, Mr. President, you got to scare hell out of the American people. Or uh, Atchison later says, Mr. President, you have to speak more clearly than truth. And so this is, you know, American political leaders are hyping the threat. They're, you know, making the threat bigger than it is. In my experience, it's actually the opposite. American political leaders, for the most part, don't actually communicate to the American public exactly how threatening the international environment is until there's some crisis, and until the Soviets detonate a nuclear weapon and North Korea invades South Korea, or until, I mean, it's interesting, by the way, that the, you know, NSC-68, which is generated by the Soviet nuclear detonation, doesn't actually get implemented until June after the invasion of of, of South Korea. Yeah, actually, later, I think it's in October. That they actually, the budget yeah, gets submitted. Right, but, yeah. but I mean, mm-hmm. nobody is ready to adopt that when it's presented in April. Right. In fact, the Secretary of Defense, you know, Nitsa records when he briefed him on it, it was Louis Johnson, who had been hired by Truman to actually, uh, you know, reduce U.S. defense spending and balance the budget, said he was going to have an aneurysm when he heard what, right. what Nitsa was talking about. So do we have... The, do we have leadership in the United States today, the capacity to actually mobilize the public behind big things, including aid to Ukraine, um, standing by Israel as it goes through this very hard, nasty business of rooting out Hamas, which is inevitably, I mean, you know, everyone's obsessed with the civilian casualties. I would just note inter alia that if you look at the percentage of civilian casualties in Gaza, even accepting the Hamas Ministry of uh, Defense or Ministry of Health's figures, uh, per uh, munition dropped compared to our casualty totals, mm-hmm. civilians in in Mosul and Raqqa, it's not even close. Mm-hmm. We had we created way more civilian casualties, uh, you know, in a per, you know, percentage basis mm-hmm. than the Israelis have, but. Um, you know, still the images of Gaza coming out of Gaza are, of course, horrific and civilian suffering is horrific. Uh, But, you know, do we have American leadership today, do you think, who can mobilize the public? And I don't just mean, you know, the president, you know, or his putative opponent, but, you know, across the political class. I I don't know. Uh, You, John, probably know better than I, but, but I would say that um, if it exists, it's operating in a very different media landscape than it was previously when presidents had probably greater capacity to deliver their message and to have it also received the way they wanted, wanted it to be received. And that was certainly the case with somebody like JFK, um, even the case during the mobilization effort and not just for the Truman Doctrine, but really for the Marshall Plan later, right. when you had these public-private partnerships that were working to get the word out about the necessity of all that money to rebuild uh, war-torn Europe. Um, a program that, as you know, was 
was initially offered to to both sides um, in in Europe and served as really the defining moment for making the Cold War cold. Um, it was in, and dividing Europe, dividing that Europe, dividing Europe. It was later that fall that you know, the common form is created, and and Walter uh, Lippmann collects his his essays in the Cold War volume, and and that was you know 1947 into 1948 is certainly a, a big year. But the larger point is that there's an ability to mobilize the public uh, in ways that are elusive today because of the proliferation of media nodes uh, and the ability of, of certainly bad actors to capitalize on, on some of those, uh, the ability to get the word out in a constructive fashion. Uh, it's a real challenge, uh, regardless of the oratorial uh, um, capabilities of, of the president or or those who serve him or their allies in 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 private life and public life. Uh, it's it's really, really tough. I share I share yeah. that view and I share that skepticism. Uh, and for, we could go on. Um, unfortunately, uh, We've reached the end of our time for today's episode of Shield of the Republic. I, I want to thank Mark Silverstone and John Owen um, at the Miller Center for uh, joining me. I hope we can have you uh, guys back uh, in the future. This has been, and hope we can come back to the Miller Center and record here again. It's uh, it's been a pleasure to be with you guys. Uh, I hope our listeners have uh, a happy holiday season. We'll be back to you in um, in early January, and that'll be it for today's episode of Shield of the Republic. <laughs>